you can actually influence world events by deploying small specialized forces to get your way to win influence abroad. And we've already mentioned, you know, that the post-war deployments of special forces that were hugely influential. If you think that the, 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 the best examples of defeating communist insurgencies were Malaya in the 1950s and Oman in the 1970s, and those were directly attributable to the deployment of special forces. Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Today we're going to talk about special forces, mainly British special forces, but with some mentions elsewhere. We will discuss their evolution and adaptation and how they are used for strategic effect. These are lateral, not linear, asymmetric, not conventional forces, organised to think outside the box and keep the enemy off balance. We have romantics, we have butchers, be it David Sterling, Paddy Main, T.E. Lawrence, Anders Lassen. The SAS and SBS were formed in World War II, and at the end of the war, their role and time appeared to be over. But post-war counterinsurgency and counter-terrorism operations gave them new life. Born of war and burnished by myth and legend, they have evolved from what one British MP described as renegades and cutthroats into becoming a key strategic asset capable of winning conflicts and influencing world events. We can loosely define the key operational criteria for special forces as secrecy, small unit, clandestine or covert, unsupported actions in deep hostile territory, but there is more, much more. Jamie, let's start with the evolution of special forces. Well, it depends where you want to start, Tom. Some people go back to the 18th century, some people go back to the Second World War. But what's in the DNA and structure of special forces is really what you said in your introduction, that they're there to deal with a lateral environment. It's not the linear front. It's not just the front line. They're there to operate deep behind enemy lines in a 360-degree environment. That's where the tension arises quite often with conventional forces, with the Green Army, because the special forces as a whole operate differently. They have a different mindset. And because nowadays they're seen as strategic forces as well, the chain of command isn't always down the conventional chain of the armed forces. And and so there's always been tension and mutual suspicion. And that's why during the war, David Sterling viewed staff officers, I think his expression was layer upon layer of fossilized shit. And there were staff officers who saw the special air service in those days as being simply a bunch of uh, raiders and cutthroats. So there is that tension. And lateral, I mean, just a little bit more on what you mean by that. Well, as you said in the introduction, it's thinking outside the box. It's not doing the conventional thing or the expected thing. Uh, during the war, 
Sykes and Fairburn, those old lags from the Shanghai police who had a military background, they set up what was called the School of Bloody Mayhem. A lot of people referred to that to train agents and special forces in silent killing and unarmed combat. And I always think that their rules for fighting in a crowd really apply to special forces. It's about speed, aggression, surprise. It's about keeping moving, keeping punching, not going down on the ground being aware of what's going on around you. And that's really a sort of microcosm, an encapsulation of what the special forces have always been about right from the start. I was looking on uh, YouTube for something about the Sykes-Fairburn knife, and there's a, very, there's a couple of very funny training videos from uh, the 1950s, I think, or maybe even the 40s, for the OSS, showing them how to, the, the, the self-defence techniques that they've adapted. And whether it was Sykes or Fairburn being recorded, he's a tiny little man taking on these great big gorillas. He's got these various techniques which he demonstrates, except when he grabs the guy by the balls, it's all done very tastefully. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's a bit of boxing, a bit of jiu-jitsu. It's the idea of the enemy using their weight, their power to, to be thrown off balance. And that's really what it's about. Certainly when it comes to the Second World War, and we'll talk about this later, it, there was very much a sort of DIY, self-help feel about it. There, there, was, there were no rules. And that's why it grew out of a wartime environment. And perhaps it could only grow out of a wartime environment. And you got that combination of the soldier romantic and the brawler. You had the T. Lawrence's, if you want to put him in a special force category. But certainly in the Second World War, you had people like David Sterling and Jock Lewis. But on the other hand, you got the brawlers and the killers, the people like Lassen, Anders Lassen, who was an exceptional soldier, exceptional special forces man, of course, won the Victoria Cross posthumously, won three military crosses. And you got Paddy Main. And although Paddy Main was drunk the night he was made head of the SAS, uh, when David Sterling was captured and ended up breaking up several bars in Cairo and ending up in jail. He, he was a meticulous planner, a meticulous thinker. He wasn't just a thug. He just wasn't, he wasn't just a brawler. And not only did the tactics evolve during the war, but also the equipment evolved during the war. I mean, you had things like the Lewis bomb and Jock Lewis actually dreamt up that device, a brilliant incendiary blast device for blowing up aircraft and fuel dumps. It was essentially something that Jock Lewis mixed up in his hut. It was a pound of Nobel plastic explosive, quarter of a pound of thermite, and some diesel oil mixed with it. In a way, it's an illustration of the special forces themselves. And, and, and the, the, the war was a laboratory... Yes, for, it, for developing these ideas, both the, the special forces and the kit that they used? Yes, it was a laboratory and a petri dish in which the perfect formula could be created. So, uh, so why, why did it sort of start in the desert? That's an excellent question, Tom. The, the reason it was the desert was that people like David Sterling and Jock Lewis had gone out to Africa with lay force with 1,500 commandos and discovered very quickly that the commandos were incapable of mounting raids along the North African coast because they were so heavily defended. So 
Sterling having been injured in a parachute drop when Jock Lewis said, I've got some parachutes, come and, come and try them out. They dropped into the desert and as the story goes, Sterling hurt his back, he was in hospital, and he came up with this idea that why are we sticking to raiding on the coast when actually there's a huge, great sand sea just to the south, and that's where the Germans don't operate, and that's where we can operate. So they could they could hit and run and they'd disappear into the desert? Yes, and there were other groups around at the time. We'll come to those. But, you know, there were people like Popsky's Private Army. There was the Long Range Desert Group. There were other strange bodies like the Special Interrogation Group, who were the soldiers who dressed as Germans and could speak German. And a lot of them were exiled Jews who had escaped Germany. So they they knew the Wehrmacht and they knew the Africa Corps. There was a problem, of course, with double agents and things like that. But there were all these new ideas. And given that people like Auchinleck, Commander-in-Chief of the Middle East, were looking for ideas because the Brits were on the back foot, the Germans got into Egypt, we had to find a way of striking back and hitting the lines of communication. So that's really why the, the desert evolved. And it's a very challenging environment. Well, well, before we get too much into the Second World War, um, the Gulf War in the desert there, that also had a, a similar effect on special forces. Yes, you move on to 1991 and the SAS were back in action. But of course, some of those lessons had been forgotten, which is surprising given that they have mobility troops in the SAS. Again, we'll talk about it later, about some of the sort of big mistakes. But yes, the the, the desert is always going to be an environment that needs to have soldiers capable of operating in it. And there seems to be a theme, though, in the, with the British Army, that whenever we're um, out of action for a while... They carry on training, but they do lose some of the knowledge. And so when they go back into an intensive environment, they end up with the wrong kit or the wrong boots or they, you forget that the desert is freezing cold at night and things well, like that. Well, again, it's that tension with staff officers and quartermasters who forget that the desert, uh, you know, it's a, an elementary mistake. And, and the most, ministry. And know, the ministry. But, a... but, but school children know that the desert falls to below freezing at night. Mm. And you'd think that that equipment would be powerful and ready to move. But a lot of those lessons have since been learned because of operations in Afghanistan and Iraq. So it's to do with keeping your hand in. And that's really the role of special forces. And because they operate around the world constantly on different missions, they're the ones who are at the cutting edge and the spearhead of foreign policy. So they often have exposure to conflicts long before we ever did. And some of them are hidden and unknown, just like the Dofar campaign in Oman in the early 1970s, which, again, re-established the SAS as a cutting-edge tool of foreign policy. Well, the uh, the jungle after the war, 1950s, Malayan emergency, that was really the thing that breathed breathe new life back into the special forces in the SAS. Yes, and again, it's it's an environmental extreme. I mean, you need to be a damn good soldier to thrive and survive in the jungle. And like the desert, it was a sort of laboratory in which new tactics, new techniques could be developed and could only really be developed by the special forces. It was an environment in which Britain very successfully dealt with a Chinese-backed 
communist insurgency. There were half a million Chinese there. There were several thousand uh, guerrillas in the jungle. And the SAS went in and took the fight to the enemy. And all sorts of new techniques were developed, whether it was tree jumping, which wasn't always successful and could be incredibly dangerous if you were jumping into a canopy of jungle trees 200 feet above the ground. There okay. were... Yes, it reminds me of that story of um, the SAS practising their jumping in the New Forest, where um, they jumped in from very high altitude and opened up very low down. This is all before um, GPS. And they landed somewhere in, in, in the New Forest, completely lost, pottering around, and they came across a cottage. So the, the commander of their force knocked on the door and a little old lady opened at the door and he said and he was all dressed up in his kind of oxygen and his black kit and weapons and so on he said excuse me madam i'm i'm sorry to disturb you but could you tell me where we are she took one look at him and she said earth and and slammed the door the jungle was where so many new techniques Mm. were formed and why jungle training is so much part of the british army training that slightly makes you they 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 learned so much in the desert in the war but then they went into the jungle because of the malayan emergency and all those others by the time they came to the gulf war i mean even when i was in the army there were still running around in Belize and places, and jungle warfare was very much a training. You know, it's like you're, you're, that bit thing of you're always fighting the last war. Well, except that you always have to have forces that are capable of working in extreme environments because you never know where these things are going to crop up again. I mean, in the 1960s, you had Borneo, and that was an incredible operation. A lot of those lessons had not been lost from Malaya. And, you know, Malaya is where, as I said, there was tree jumping, there were early operations with helicopters, there were uh, inflatable boats being used to take raiding parties up the rivers. So a lot of this was developed during that time and again gave the special forces a new raison d'etre. And it's no coincidence that the person who founded them again in the early 1950s for the Malayan emergency was Mad Mike Calvert, who commanded the SAS at the end of the Second World War. So there was that heritage, there was that stream that sort of flowed down from the Second World War and through the post-war decades. Yeah, I suppose my point was that, you know, even the SAS can lose sight of the ball um, in these things. And I also wonder if, because these guys are incredibly tough, whether there's a slight tough guy thing about it, you know, it's the desert, it's cold, yeah, I know, but we're very tough. And is there therefore a danger that you can think, you know, of course, I, I, you know, I can get through this. You know, we're, we're trained for this sort of thing. And actually, they made their life harder than they needed to. Well, you, you have to have a can-do attitude. You have to have the ability to improvise. And you have to be self-motivated and self-driven. And, and that's what, I suppose, puts the special into special forces. And if you look at the other themes that developed in the post-war environment and drew on experiences from World War II. There were such things as hearts and minds, the idea of winning over the population, working with the population. And you saw it with Anders Lassen during his raids through the Aegean, the idea that you help the civilians because they in turn will help you. You know, the people of those Greek islands through the Dodecanese and the Cyclades were starving. And people forget the horrors that were inflicted on the Greeks by 
the Germans, by the occupiers. And Lassen did one island a favour when he discovered that there was a Gestapo man who was using his dog to rip the throats out of locals for, for sport. And he killed the Gestapo man and his dog. He took a lot of food, made damn sure that the fishing kikes that he was sailing around on doing his raids carried a lot of food that he could deliver to villages. And that was very important. In the Malayan emergency, the first point of contact for a lot of SS patrols with locals was through the medic that was in the patrol. And again, that was extremely important, you know, helping the community on the medical front. Yeah. Uh, in the Dofar campaign in Oman in the early 1970s, You'll find that every time that uh, a village was taken or influence was being won, there would be people coming along to drill boreholes and bring water up onto the jebels in which the SAS were operating. Mm. So it's extremely important. Yeah, and even sort of Afghan schools today. In fact, when I, um, again, my brief military career, I was an umpire in uh, Turkey for one of the AMF exercises there in the mid-'80s. And when we were being briefed at the beginning, there, there was an element of hearts and minds that they were said we should, uh, you know, carry on. Or when we were driving through villages, we could talk to the locals and hand out boiled sweets to the kids and so on. And we did this for a couple of weeks, and then the order came down that we to, we were to stop doing this because the Turkish army had complained that they were going to lose respect in the villages if we were being nice to them. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You, you you've got to be aware of local culture and local. Well, I saw so I, so my again my point is slightly that the British attitude is different from this kind of boot on the neck type um, attitude to so many I mean the Turkish army is, is enormous and sort of you have to be a, a general to change a bus timetable. But we have huge experience of peacekeeping and counterinsurgency and counterterrorism. It's no surprise that given the success in Borneo during the Borneo confrontation, Dennis Healy, the then defence minister, said it, it was an example of one of the most efficient uses of military force in the history of the world. Yeah. And so, again, it was a great experience to the British Armed Forces and a great example of the use of special forces. Uh, so what they're, they're good at doing is with a very small budget, you know, a tiny amount of men, rather than sending in 10 divisions to put down the locals, you have this very small group of people who... Um, deploy these techniques, which means they can have a strategic effect. And it's incredibly flexible, the idea of having a four-man patrol, with each of them specialising but being cross-trained as well. And it allows them to, to move into an area and operate in that flexible, unseen way, or having to deal with irregulars, which is another thing that has developed over the years, that you see in the Second World War, for example, someone like Roy Farron of the SAS operating far behind enemy lines in northern Italy and having the most bizarre group of people around him and moulding them into an effective fighting force. You know, he had Russians, you know, white Russians and former uh, Soviet prisoners with him. He had Italian partisans. He had his own men. He even had a, a piper parachuted in with his bagpipes. I don't know whether he wore his kilt for the parachute drop, but that might have scared the Germans. But he managed to take on a div divisional HQ. He killed 60 people in those HQs, blew the hell out of them, and managed to get away. 
using this band of irregulars. Again, in Dofar and Oman in the 1970s, we were using furkar. We were using turned locals, turned tribesmen who had moved away from the Marxist rebels and offered their services to the Sultan of Oman and to the SAS Special Forces. So that way of dealing with locals, and again, it's, it's transferred into American special forces culture because the Greenberries do exactly that. You saw that in northern Iraq with Dossum's forces, with the Greenberries working there. And the Northern Alliance. Yeah. With the Northern <laughs> Alliance. The funniest thing was that they ended up having to have bigger saddles because the Afghan saddles were far too small for them. For the big American butt. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, yeah, you know, even, the, and also headhunters make excellent uh, co-fighters co in, in this kind of warfare, don't they? That's right. The SAS were using the Iban headhunters in the Borneo campaign and, of course, in the Malayan emergency. And it makes it so much easier if you have someone who can cut a head off to bring them out to be identified uh, communist insurgents. Um, the Chinese, because there's nothing worse than having to drag a, a body uh, miles through swamp and jungle to have it identified by special branch once once you get outside the jungle. So carrying yeah. a head is much easier. Especially if you shrunk it. I mean, this is my plug to get the shrunken heads back in the Pitt Rivers Museum. <laughs> there you go. It's it's almost an advert. So this this is the this is evolution. This is the school of bloody mayhem we're talking about. Well, that's really how it sort of came about, you know, all these different groups, all these different ideas, and they were put through and developed in the crucible of war. And there's another aspect to special forces as well, which is really, again, an area that can create tension, because quite often they're the spearhead of the intelligence war as well. And so, for example, in the Second World War, you had commandos trying to raid um, Rommel's headquarters in North Africa, and that was a fiasco because Rommel wasn't there and men were killed and captured. There was an attempt by the SAS to attack Rommel and kill him or capture him uh, in northern France as well after D-Day, but that chateau was empty, so the SAS never mounted a raid on it. But there's always been that sort of use of the special forces. In the Malayan emergency in the 1950s, it was discovered that the communist insurgents were trying to get more rounds of ammunition, more grenades, and using prostitutes to ask British soldiers or entice British soldiers or blackmail British soldiers into giving them arms. So what the special forces did was simply plant doctored grenades on them. And there were quite a lot of communist insurgents who were blown up by these grenades that went off. Well, so that's the grenade with a half a second fuse. <laughs> yes, as soon as the pin was pulled out. Yeah. And again, later on in, in the Yemen sort of campaign and Aden, there were pictures being sent to uh, rebels of... President Nasser of Egypt, because they, of course, were imbued with this sort of Arab nationalism and loved portraits of President Nasser. So they were receiving or being given portraits of Nasser that just happened to have plastic explosive in them. You can see that theme running through to the 80s and 90s when special forces and secret intelligence service were doing what was called jarking basically sabotaging um, caches of weapons for the IRA, either with bugging devices and tracking devices or just sabotaging them so they didn't work. So, you know, there's a long theme 
going through special forces work in the same way that ex-special forces people are often used for deniable operations all around the world uh, under cover of security companies. Yes, assassination and active measures. Yes, active measures have always been important. And so you've got to have occasionally deniable operations and the increment of SIS, the Secret Intelligence Service, and ex-Special Forces people are very useful for those sort of operations. OK, I think we've got it. Speed, aggression, surprise, hit, move. Those are all the, the techniques. Um, let's move on to the idea that Special Forces are a strategic asset rather than just tactical. What does this mean, Jamie? I think there are two parts to that, Tom. The first thing is that by saying they're strategic means that they're it's not people down the lower chain of command who tell them what to do. They are answerable generally to the commander-in-chief. They are there to create a strategic effect, whether it's deception, to cut lines of communication, to attack airfields, to operate behind enemy lines, as you said. And in a way, the strategic element, the command element, has gone higher and higher up the chain because with counter-terrorist operations now, quite often the command comes from either the Prime Minister or the President. So in 1980, when the Princess Gate siege occurred and the SAS went in and sorted that out... That was the Iranian embassy, wasn't it? That was the Iranian embassy siege, which really, in a way, brought the SAS into the public gaze in their black flame-retardant combat gear and roping down to take out the terrorists. Yeah, that photograph on the newspaper is, is iconic. Yes, it, it was. And it, it did the British government and the SAS a great deal of good. You, so you saw that in 1980 and you saw the 2011 uh, raid by SEAL Team 6 on Osama bin Laden. And again, that was a strategic command from the President of the United States. So you can see that in those situations, they are directly commanded, which you wouldn't get with any other unit, really, in the armed forces of any nation. But because of that counter-terrorist role, you get the prime minister or the president involved. And I remember when Harold Wilson uh, deployed the SAS to Northern Ireland, he actually announced it in the House of Commons. He wanted to have an impact with that, and he got it. It's not always a wise idea to publicise those deployments, but there's a political dimension to those sorts of deployments. In the same way, there's a political dimension to seeing the SBS roping down onto a tanker or onto a potential threat uh, approaching the shores of Britain. You know, so that's why there is a strategic aspect to, to that. Is there a concern sometimes that the politicians start to think that these special forces are a magic bullet? Yes, I think there is always that concern, and they always think it's a sort of get-out-of-jail-free card, and that it's very useful for them when they want to make a deployment either with some publicity or without publicity, that it's, it's a sort of diplomacy. You can achieve huge influence and huge gains by deploying special forces abroad, as we've seen around the world time and time again, even if it's just a bodyguarding role or training the special forces. I mean, for a long time, the Sultan of Oman special forces uh, were officered by Brits, ex-special forces Brits. So it does give Britain 
and the US with its own special forces a huge amount of leverage in, in those sort of roles. And you know, we're talking now, we're moving on to the second aspect of strategic is the strategic effect. You can actually influence world events by deploying small specialized forces to get your way to win influence abroad. And we've already mentioned, you know, the, the post-war deployments of special forces that were hugely influential. If you think that the, 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 the best examples of defeating communist insurgencies were Malaya in the 1950s and Oman in the 1970s, and those were directly attributable to the deployment of special forces. So you can have a huge geopolitical effect from fairly small numbers of people. Yeah, well, I mean, in Borneo, uh, the confrontation there, 59 Brits were killed for the cost of 10,000 Indonesians. Yes, and there were a lot of small unit raids because we're very good at that. A mate of mine uh, won the military cross when he led a raid of 12 guys, 12 Marines, Royal Marines, uh, against an Indonesian OP on Sabatic Island. It was very successful. And there were myriad raids like that that pushed the Indonesians back. The Indonesians were trying to take over Borneo, trying to gain leverage. Um, there was a great political tension with then Malaysia. The Brits came in on the side of the Malaysian Federation and beat the Indonesians, and the Indonesians had to give up. You know, this was simply uh, an Indonesian dictator trying to take over Borneo, and he failed. And that was because largely of British special forces. So you can see how influential it can be. And again, if you go back to the Second World War, there's a fantastic example of the application of special forces to achieve a strategic result. You had 200 men under Jellicoe, George Jellicoe, Earl Jellicoe, who commanded the SBS, which what was then called the Special Boat Squadron, which was a development of D-Squadron of the SAS. It was hived off from the SAS. They achieved an amazing result. Those 200 men basically liberated Greece, and the idea was to either tie up the German forces there to relieve pressure on Allied forces working their way up Italy, or to drive them out. And so those 200 men took over Greece. He then deployed Anders Lassen, the great raider, uh, in a patrol boat with 40 men heading up the coast. And Anders Lassen was there at the liberation of Athens with Jellicoe, drove around with a jeep. There's a great story of how he basically purloined this jeep and ended up not wanting it to be pinched so drove it into the lift of the hotel and took it up to the floor he was sleeping on so he could guard it there but this roistering bunch of cutthroats and special forces went and liberated Salonika these 40 men with some Greek partisans uh, managed to convince the Germans that there was a force of 30,000 allied forces landing close by uh, basically, Anders Lassen got hold of four local fire engines, drove them around the town of Salonika with their bells ringing and firing off shots. They even had one of their guys on a horse with a Bren gun uh, making a hell of a din. They fired Piat anti-tank rounds into the air to look like artillery. And the Germans were essentially chased away. And there were firefights there and you know, very intense skirmishes. But with that small band of people, Anders Lassen 
achieved victory there. And so you can see in Greece alone the impact that special forces can have. Yeah, and I mean, even that great sceptic of heroes, Monty, did actually accept that the uh, special forces had a key role in defeating the Africa Corps. Oh, they had a huge role, and he he had seen it, although he would never really admit it to David Serling's face. He was a profound supporter of special forces operations because he could see the need in those situations to have a reach, to have forces that could reach 300 miles or more behind enemy lines. And by the end of the Second World War, it's worth remembering that the SAS knocked out more German and Italian aircraft than the Royal Air Force did. So that alone shows the strategic impact, the war-winning role that special forces, if they're used well, can achieve. So in more modern times then, special forces give influence in a world of mutually assured destruction. Yes, in a time of deterrence and detente and the sort of tensions between the Warsaw Pact, Soviet Union, and NATO and the United States, you had to have grades of response that didn't mean you had to go straight to nuclear confrontation. So the best way to achieve that is to have small units capable of fighting proxy wars and influencing insurgencies and counterinsurgencies around the world. And that's why special forces really found their feet and maintained a role throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s. They were extremely useful, just as in the modern age, for a different reason, and that the world is so fragmented and you have warlordism and nationalism around the world. Again, it's very useful to have graded responses, different sorts of responses, in that 360-degree environment that we spoke about. Okay, well, we're going to talk a bit more about that uh, later on, but we just want to now talk about some of the characters from the past who've helped create the lessons that the Special Forces have learned to uh, make themselves so spectacularly good at what they do today. So maybe we should go back to the 18th century and Robert Rogers and his rangers... Yes, he's really the founder of the special forces myth in a way. He goes back to the 18th century, uh, 1759, which was in the middle of the Seven Years' War against Gessou, the French. And it was a time when the British Empire was really consolidating. We had kicked the French out of India, we'd kicked them out of the West Indies, we were kicking them to pieces in Canada. You know, so he basically... Robert Rogers was a product of his time and he consolidated his concepts, the rules of ranging, the 28 rules of ranging. And you go anywhere in the world today and you'll find that those 28 rules of ranging are on the walls of special forces messes around the world. So he was, in a way, the the godfather of special forces thinking. And actually, um, for all forces as well, I mean, a lot of the things he would suggest in his rules are, are very sort of straightforward and simple ideas about training and so um, professional soldiering. Yes, it's good soldiering and it covers things such as keeping your musket close to hand and clean and uh, how to do a fire a manoeuvre, how to do a fighting retreat. How, how many to get people to have on sentry duty at Yes, night. All, all of that sort of thing. And yeah. although he didn't sort of necessarily fight in a small unit, he was very much into 
good training, which was very rare for that period. He was extremely charismatic, and there are a lot of aspects to him. The things that he did in terms of being quite an unresolved character and also an alcoholic. There's quite a lot of Paddy Maine there, really, if you if you look at what happened to him. In fact, at one point, he ended up with gambling debts in jail and two lots of his men turned up to break him out of jail. He was hugely popular. Those but I think there's two lots of men. One lot of men turned up to break him out and found there were another lot already breaking him out. So it wasn't like two groups at the same time. They kind of tripped over each other in the dark. Well, it just shows how popular he was yeah. as a commander. And he just had this amazing capacity for scouting, for wrecking, for close target reconnaissance, and, and again, developed, pushed forward those aspects of soldiering that really transfer, translate so well into special forces work. His most famous action was really the raid on the Indian village of St. Francis, the Abenaki Indians, which were essentially in league with the French. And there were French missionaries there telling the Abenakis that it was a holy war against the Brits and all of that sort of thing. What happened was that Rogers led 149 men uh, in whaling boats up the river uh, and then walked hundreds of miles through Spruce Bog and attacked the village. He was pursued by 300 French soldiers, by the Abenakis, war parties who were trying to ambush him. He went into the village, killed 200. It was a massacre. There were already 600 scalps there taken from uh, the English, mostly, by the Abenaki, who were extremely warlike. This massacre occurred, which has always been a bit of a stain on Roger's character, but you know he was a man of his time. There then began this fighting withdrawal. It's reckoned that he essentially walked 467 miles. I mean, travelled in appalling circumstances. His men were starving. There was no one at the RV that they had set up with food, extra food for them. So they ran out of supplies. What happened was Rogers actually built two rafts that fell to pieces. He had to lash them together in the river and try and get it going again, and he managed to take food back to his men. There are rumours of cannibalism among the men who eventually split up into small groups to see if they could escape. And out of that 149 that set off originally from Crown Point, from British territory, to take on the Abenaki Indians and the French, um, 69 didn't make it back. I mean, there, there were heavy losses. But he was very much a pioneer and a man of his time. Here is an extract from the original plan of discipline, extracted from Major Rogers' journal and intended for his Rogers' Rangers in 1759. Here are five examples from the 28. Rule 3. If you march over marshes or soft ground, change your position and march abreast of each other to prevent the enemy from tracking you, as they would do if you marched in a single file, till you get over such ground, and then resume your former order and march till it is quite dark before you encamp, which do, if possible, on a piece of ground which that may afford your sentries the advantage of seeing or hearing the enemy some considerable distance, keeping one half of your whole party awake alternately through the night. Rule 5. If you have the good fortune to take any prisoners, keep them separate till they are examined, and in your return take a different route from that in which you went out, that you may the better discover any party in your rear and have an opportunity 
if their strength be superior to yours, to alter your course or disperse, as circumstances may require. Rule 13. In general, when pushed upon by the enemy, reserve your fire till they approach very near, which will then put them into the greatest surprise and consternation, and give you an opportunity of rushing upon them with your hatchets and cutlasses to the better advantage. Rule 15. At the first dawn of day, awake your whole detachment. That being the time when the savages choose to fall upon their enemies, you should by all means be in readiness to receive them. Rule 21. If the enemy pursue your rear, take a circle till you come to your own tracks, and there form an ambush to receive them, and give them the first fire. I hope you're enjoying Special Force. This is a good place to take a break. Put on the kettle and treat yourself to a biscuit. And while you're doing that, why not share this podcast with a friend? Click the share button and forward it via WhatsApp, text or email. If you have any questions or suggestions, please email us at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Now on with the show. The other person who really represents the sort of early development of special forces thinking and raiding was none other than Thomas Cochrane, the, the fantastic sea raider, uh, someone that Napoleon called the sea wolf. And, and who was the, um, supposedly uh, the template for Hornblower and also for Captain Aubrey in the O'Brien books. Yes, and he was very much part of that idea of raiding that I suppose traces its roots back to Drake. We've talked about that piratical instinct in the Brits. And, you know, Drake was called El Draco by the Spanish, so they all had their, their names. In fact, Anders Lassen was probably called a heap of things by the Germans during his raiding in the Aegean. But, you know, that seaborne raiding... Insults that, worn with pride, I'd it, say. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, but it's keeping the enemy off balance, yeah. you know, making them spread their forces, making them reinforce areas that shouldn't need to be reinforced. Yeah. It, it, that's, that's what happens. And Cochrane did some extraordinary antics. I mean, it's the stuff of legend. You know, his raids on board HMS Speedy along the coast of France and elsewhere were just fantastic. I mean, I, th I think he was pursued by a Spanish frigate at one stage, wasn't he, and put a candle or a lantern in a barrel. Yes, and in fact, in that film, Master and Commander, uh, which I mentioned earlier, Captain Albury, there is a moment where they're being pursued by the French and uh, he makes a little raft and puts a lantern on it and pushes it off, and that is very much inspired, I think, from that story. And he also... Um, but he was clever about the way he did things. You know, when he found code books, he wouldn't just take them, he would copy them and leave them there so the French didn't realise that their codes had been uh, stolen. And he was incredibly aggressive with the way that he attacked... Uh, other ships so even though he only had a tiny little ship himself at one point HMS Speedy he took on much larger ships and it was you know the sort of shock and surprise of his attacks meant that he managed to defeat much larger ships one of 300 Spaniards when he only had a crew of 80 himself. Yes and when he took over HMS Imperieuse he did even bigger raids along the South France he he, he then attacked and took a Martello Tower off Menorca he took various French forts. He held a fort 
for quite some time and delayed a French army for a month. I mean, he was an extraordinary character. And again, you can see this sort of, these fighting concepts in people like Sidney Smith, for example, in the early 19th century. These well, sort you of pun- love Sidney Smith. Oh, he's fantastic. <laughs> but, but, you know, these great eccentrics. I love the fact that Thomas Cochrane had a punch-up. In fact, it ended up as a duel when he was at a fancy dress ball and went uh, dressed as a sailor and was mistaken as a sailor. Uh, by an officer, was it a French? Or yeah, a French, a French officer. He probably asked him to bring him a drink or something. He told him to f off. <laughs> yes, and, and and Cochrane ended up shooting him. Uh, I think he survived. But, yeah, he did. Uh, yeah, but it's the sort of thing. And again, but the other thing with Cochrane, which is interesting with all these characters, is how often they didn't get on with the high ups. You know, he he had problems with uh, Lord St Vincent as much as, you know, David Sterling had difficulties with the high-ups in uh, in the desert in the Second World War. And again, they end up doing sort of mercenary activities because that's what they know. I mean, Sterling set up the Keeney Meanies, KMS and things like that uh, to operate in Yemen using ex-Special Forces guys. And again, Cochrane ended up being used by the Chileans and became an national hero in Chile and to this day the Chilean Navy revere him. Yeah and, and some of the other countries, Peru, I mean he's like after Simon Bolivar, he's about the you know, he's about the top hero of the uh, of the place yes. certainly Englishman anyway. Yes he was raiding Peru, I mean again he, he just specialised in raiding and losing money, I think he uh, was also um, charged for uh, what was it, for embezzlement or something like that on the stock exchange, defrauding yes, the stock exchange yeah. But These people are best kept in wars and not allowed to operate in civilian times. Well, yes, and isn't it amazing that, he, again, when he was a junior officer, he was court-martialed for being impertinent to a senior officer. And they all have that strand, that streak of uh, anti-establishment, anti-hierarchy, as you said. That makes them such good pirate raiders. Yes, it's a bit like the Dirty Dozen. <laughs> but but yes, it's exactly what makes them such good raiders because you know it's on merit, it's on fighting ability, it's not on who you are or where you are in the hierarchy. We mentioned uh, at the start the romantics and the butchers and one of the romantics from history would be T.E. Lawrence. Yes, and although he wasn't special forces per se. Uh, we, we never think of him as being special forces. He did sort of set the tone of that soldier romantic who worked with irregulars, yes. you know, worked yeah. with the Arab revolt, and again achieved a strategic effect by blowing up communications lines, by roving around. And we've spoken about this in, in another podcast, about the long-term strategic effect, the fact that Basil Littlehart, the military strategist, came came up with the concept of the indirect approach, that you move around the enemy like a gas, you never confront them head-on. And so those sort of tactics really are part of the DNA, are part of the stream of thought that mm. affected and influenced special forces later on in the Second World War. Yeah, and I mean, even you know, running India when we had it, when, you know, when it was part of the British Empire, and it was sort of a couple of dozen civil servants. I mean, everything was done on on a very small number of people and co-opting the locals to effectively run everything for you. Yes, and having brave men to go out there when the shit hit the fan. Very, yeah, very, very brave. Okay, staying with the theme of sea raiding, 
Let's talk about Operation Postmaster. Yes, well, we're moving on 100 years or more from Thomas Cochrane, but it's in the same vein, of course. And this was the first deniable operation of World War II, and it was conceived, I suspect, by Colin Gubbins, who was Director of Operations and Training at the Special Operations Executive, SOE, at the time. And as we talked about before, SOE were tasked with setting Europe ablaze. But this went further afield. This was sending a Brixham trawler with six guys from Poole Harbour. They'd all been trained at Station 6, Aston Manor, by Sykes and Fairburn, the people we've already mentioned, in silent killing. And they went down to Dorset and continued their training with huge route marches, 60, 70 miles. Um, And there was the young Anders Lassen, who was formerly an able seaman, who proved himself a fantastic agent and special forces operator. And he ordered two hunting bows and became an extremely accomplished marksman with that. And he was very good with a knife as well. But these six guys went all the way down to Spanish Guinea, to Fernando Po and the harbour of Santa Isabel, and did a cutout mission, an amazing mission, 3,000 miles. Uh, Other SOE agents flew into the area. They went into the harbour. They had managed to get the German officers uh, on shore to a dinner party. And it's an extraordinary story. Got the Germans extremely drunk. And in the harbour was an 8,000-ton German liner, a tugboat, and a pleasure cruiser. The Brits had thought that this might be part of a front, a German front, for supporting uh, logistically U-boat operations uh, off Africa, which were extremely threatening to British interests because, of course, we had to send uh, troop ships and resupplies to India uh, around the Horn of Africa. And we didn't want the U-boats sitting offshore being supported by these ships uh, in Spanish Guinea. So we went in and did a cutout operation, kidnapped those ships. And there's a story that the German captain was so enraged, he actually went and confronted the British consul uh, when he was absolutely drunk as a skunk, threw a punch, but the British consul was better at boxing, so beat seven bells of crap out of him. That was the end of the story. But it was a fantastic example of what could be done and the sort of raiding that Thomas Cochrane had done over 100 years before. Anders Lassen went on to lead with Gus March Phillips other raids with the small-scale raiding force. They were a great example of what could be done with small numbers of men on patrol boats and converted torpedo boats raiding places like the Channel Islands. It was that raid that forced Hitler or encouraged Hitler to issue his notorious commando order saying that all raiders should be killed. And that's even if they've been captured? Yes, and even if they were wearing uniforms. So, you know, it was that raid that really started the whole German attitude towards any kind of raiding and special forces. And so many special forces guys were tortured and murdered as a result of that order later on. But that was really the starting point. Because of the success of those small raids, uh, Gus March Phillips sadly was 
tragically was killed on the uh, coast of France when he was doing a beach reconnaissance. But the survivors were essentially sent out to Haifa and to Beirut to join what was to become the Special Boat Squadron and start their raiding in the Aegean. And that was really the beginning of the Lassen legend when he sailed around the Dodecanese and the Cyclades uh, raiding islands, doing huge harm and overstretching the German garrisons and, and becoming such a headache for the German military command in Rhodes. And he he just became notorious. They were terrified of him, the Germans, particularly those small garrisons that were dotted around on islands uh, throughout that vast expanse of sea. And there were some extraordinary raids. I mean, there was one raid led by a Major Ian Patterson where he got to an island. The orphans uh, from this orphanage run by nuns were going to be taken away and taken off to roads by the Germans. And so what Patterson did, he dressed as an Italian priest. And when the Germans turned up, on schedule, of course, uh, to take the children away, um, Patterson ushered them into the orphanage and then uh, attacked them all. They were killed. He then ran down with his men. I don't know whether he was still wearing his priest's outfit... (laughs) I think he just pulled off his dog collar at the last moment. (laughs) Well, he was carrying Piats and Bren guns and those sorts of bits of kit and attacked the German boats that had come in to take the children away So, uh, and, and then massacred them. And then on the way out, when he and his men were, were extracted, they, in the dark, unfortunately, um, moored alongside a German vessel, at which point Patterson leapt over with some of his men uh, with Tommy guns, took on that boat, got to the uh, bow of that boat, that particular transport, and used the 20mm cannon to attack the other German boats that were, as, were there as well. And then eventually they just dived overboard and and got to the shore and uh, got back to their position, which by then was in the Gulf of Kos. They had managed to insert their raiding force, maintain a base um, in the Gulf of Kos, basically on Turkish territory. But they were extremely successful in tying up several German divisions, creating absolute havoc. You know, he did the same on uh, Crete, actually, earlier, when when Operation Husky was in train and the Brits were invading uh, Sicily as a precursor to going on to the mainland of Italy. Again, it's a classic example of raiding because you had uh, Anders Lassen and three of his men attacking this large airbase. They split up. Two took the west side of the airbase, um, two took the east side. Lassen got into the base, and because he was fair-haired, he managed to convince the Germans that he was a German officer. So he was firing Lugers at them. He got hold of a machine-gun nest, shot up planes. Uh, His comrade-in-arms was uh, planting Lewis bombs on planes. It was absolute mayhem. The, The other pair blew up an ammo and fuel dump on the other side of the airfield. Lassen went back four times into that airbase during that raid, just sowing absolute chaos and carnage. Uh, he killed two sentries with his knife. He, he was an amazing character that had the most incredible ability 
for silent killing. Yeah, he was he was the only non-Commonwealth recipient of the Victoria Cross because he was a Dane in the Second World War. Yes, and his reading was just legendary. Yeah. And Castelli, I think, is such a fine example of that. And the total fearlessness. He shot up a Kubel wagon bringing in German reinforcements, yeah. shot up a Caterpillar tractor. He just, just, But it was his pretending to be a German officer, because he spoke mm. fluent German, leading Germans in... in Chaotic to their attacks, own demise. Yeah, <laughs> it was, yeah. It was... Well, I mean, he died basically um, because he was mortally wounded trying to get his men out from a situation in Italy, and um, having taken out three enemy positions, but he refused to withdraw because uh, his men hadn't got out. Yes, and I always think that he was probably one of those people who would not have thrived in peacetime. No, he you, went you out always a get blaze of glory. <laughs> yes, you always get those sorts of people, and yeah. but he was phenomenal character and and again one of the founding fathers certainly of british special forces and uh, he, he he rightly deserves that mm. that position well to our danish listener well done the danes for sending him to us indeed we, he, we he, polished him into a fine diamond okay uh, and then another sort of sea the desert Yes, and we spoke about it really near the start, the, the start of the SAS and David Sterling's great project. There were a lot of forces operating in the desert at the time and alongside the SAS. We talked about the Long Range Desert Group and the use of the SAS of the Long Range Desert Group as really their taxi service started because uh, Operation Squatter, that terrible operation in which 55 SAS guys, newly formed L Detachment SAS guys, uh, parachuted in to take out five airfields in November 1941, turned into a catastrophe. Only 21 came out. The others were killed, captured. Nothing was achieved. That really convinced Sterling there had to be a better means of getting around. So He turned to the Long Range Desert Group. They started ferrying the SAS in to attack. And Sterling started scoring some good hits on the Germans and Italians. And this was a seesaw campaign. Things like Tobruk fell and were then recaptured. Yeah, I think three times, wasn't it? Yes, it it just seesawed backwards and forwards across that famous coastal road, which we then saw used again during the campaign against... Uh, Colonel Gaddafi. It's, you know, still inland, going on to this day. Yes, because inland it's very difficult to move around. But Sterling, using the long range desert group, uh, could cross those sorts of expanses, the, the Depression, the Great Sand Sea, very easily. They were past masters at it. And, you know, once the Willis Jeep came in, it could go over almost any sort of terrain. It had an armoured windscreen, it had tyres that weren't inflated too hard, it had sand channels to get it out of uh, problem sands. So they could move around. So they started turning up at air bases, attacking air bases in the, around the Gulf of Sirte and then air bases around uh, Benghazi. You know, those early raids, those ones that came pretty soon after the uh, terrible parachute drop that went wrong, 
where they actually went in and took out air bases, started scoring some significant kills for the SAS. Uh, the, the, the first really successful raid in December '41 was Paddy Main, the famous one where he took out an entire officer's mess and just opened the door with two of his men with Tommy guns and Paddy Main was carrying a Colt 45 and just said, good evening, and then slaughtered everyone there and took out, I think it was about 24 aircraft. Uh, Bill Fraser took out another airfield with um, over two dozen aircraft um, further along. This started the, the legend of the SAS raids. Then in July 1942, you started getting the famous Willis Jeep raids on German and Italian air bases. And that was the one at Sidi Hanesh in which David Sterling led two lines, two columns of Willis Jeeps armed with Vickers K machine guns, 68 machine guns in all, firing 1,200 rounds a minute. That's over 80,000 rounds of ammo a minute uh, onto the tarmac and shot up a huge number of German transports and bombers. That again caused Rommel to have to redeploy a lot of men to guard his airfields, guard his back. Over time, it became too difficult for the SAS to actually break into those airfields, the ones that they had managed to get into almost with impunity and cause such destruction. But um, it gave some respite to, say, for instance, the uh, endless bombing of Malta. Oh, it was incredibly important. And some raids didn't always go well. I mean, there were some uh, raids where they tried to get into Benghazi harbour and sink ships, and that was much harder to do. But the air bases, for a time, they, they managed to penetrate them very successfully. But when that was toughened, when that nut became tougher to crack, they they started just driving up and down the coastal road, shooting up convoys of vehicles, mm. uh, cutting communications links, blowing up fuel dumps. You know, there were other groups doing that at the same time. There was Popsky's private army linked to the 8th Army, whose role was to do reconnaissance and to blow up uh, fuel supplies. So there were other groups doing that at the time. And then when the North African campaign was won by the Allies and the Americans and Brits landed, Rommel's forces were squeezed out. In fact, Rommel had no fuel for his uh, forces by then. His panzers had just run out of synthetic fuel. I mean, the Germans were trying to manufacture fuel from geraniums. I mean, they were that that desperate. So the North African campaign ended. And, you know, the history is well known of the regiment um, after that, you know, their campaigns in Italy, their use in France. You can see how, again, their taskings were evolving, their missions were evolving. And you know, when they dropped into uh, France to coincide with D-Day, there were lots of different groups trying to sabotage, trying to disrupt the Germans, trying to stop the 2nd Panzer Division, the Das Reich, getting up towards the Normandy beaches. And you had operations like Operation Bull Basket that again ended in catastrophe because you know, there were 40 SAS guys in the forest, uh, their position was known, their presence was detected. You can't keep those sorts of things secret from you know, the French peasantry and the, the rumours get out. And eventually, um, 28 
of the SS men were captured and tortured and executed. Three of them more were killed in hospital uh, with injections of morphine or phenol. So, again, it's, it's an example of Hitler's commando order in action. And, and he didn't um, seemingly understand it because the Germans didn't have an equivalent raiding force in the desert, for instance, did they? They did have special forces such as Korzeny's parachute group. They had the Brandenburgers who dressed as American soldiers, for example, during the Battle of the Bulge. But no one in the German army really knew how to deploy them. The Brandenburgers, for example, were used as garrison troops in the Aegean to try and stem the attacks from Anders Lassen. So if you think that British special forces quite often sat uncomfortably within the command structure of the British army, and we were viewed with suspicion by a lot of senior officers. You can imagine in the German army where every van will obey orders. Um, Isn't that an accent <laughs> slipping in there? <laughs> I can't help it. The, uh, being brought up on sitcoms and Dad's army. Yeah, the, war mags. <laughs> so, so you can see how the Germans didn't really know how to use them in in any particular way. And, of course... You know, we were the raiders. We were the ones who had our backs to the walls. So, in mm. a way, yes, know, they the, were de- defensive. I mean, yes, I mean, the, the the impetus for British special forces was there for a reason. Mm. You know, we didn't have uh, huge manpower at our disposal, and you know, we were looking for any way out. Which is why people like Auchinleck, um, in Middle East Command, were so open to. David Sterling's original suggestion. You know, by the time that uh, British forces of Allied forces uh, entered Germany, the SAS were moving ahead of the forces, and they were really in the attacking role, and they were the ones who were getting ambushed by Volkssturm and Hitler Youth carrying Panzerfausts. Yeah, well, they turned the tables a bit. Yes, them. and that's one of one of the reasons. But you know, they had a huge influence on. You know, military thinking during the war. But, of course, come the end of the war, by October 1945, they were simply wrapped up. People said there, there isn't a role for them and no one was thinking in terms of military ventures abroad. They were thinking of trying to rebuild the country, a debt-ridden nation. Yeah. So it was really post-war, it was in the 1950s, that people started thinking again in terms of how are we going to project influence how are we going to defend what's left of the colonies and malaya was a very good example of that use of special forces okay well before we get into that jamie just a final note um a little ps after the war the sas were disbanded but they actually went on hunting germans nazis didn't they under prince prince galitzin oh they did there was a secret fund um channeled through the war ministry you know, no one really knew about it, but people like Churchill was very much in favour of it, and it was set up by Franks, who had been a SAS commander in the war. Luckily, there were very dedicated bloodhounds like Major Eric Barkworth, who went around, occasionally worked with Vera Atkins of SOE, to find out what had happened to the SAS guys who had been murdered, tortured and murdered um, by the Germans. And the Germans behaved just astonishingly uh, disgracefully in, in terms of their 
treatment, maltreatment and torture of the SAS and well, the way they took them out and yeah. executed them. And the Major Barkworth, bloodhound, no pun intended. <laughs> Why do you say bloodhound? I a don't Major know. Barkworth. No, it's it. like when, I, when <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. on the train to Barking no, with I've the dog. I've got a pizza waiting. Uh, Barkworth used every device and interviewed thousands of Germans, ex-Gestapo and Sekai-Einstein's security thugs to try and find out what had happened to them. And at one stage, he, he was believed to even have used the Ouija board to try and find out where some of the bodies were and who's, where some of the Gestapo and Nazis were hiding and was very successful in rounding them up. But not all of them faced just, justice, of course, which was very sad but anyway but in the post-war environment what really brought the SAS and other special forces back to life were the counterinsurgencies and counter-revolutionary and counter-terrorist activities that were required uh, Britain had no money uh, they still were clinging on to remnants of empire or some colonies. Um, well, they were really unravelling the empire, I mean, in a way, weren't they, in a hopefully in an orderly fashion? They were, and some groups, such as communist Chinese, didn't want an orderly withdrawal by the British. They wanted to push things forward and they wanted to take over those countries. So you had a communist insurgency. Uh, in the late 1940s in Malaysia, um, spurred on by the communists taking control in China. The SAS were reformed on, on the back of the Malayan scouts. Was that about 1952? Yes. They were incredibly successful in doing that, and there were you know, many, many operations, and they managed to push the tide back. And Malaya was very important to the British because it had tin and rubber. You know, we didn't want that sort of concept of the domino theory that you know was poo-pooed later on over Vietnam. But actually, we were worried that that would happen. And so you know, we sent in special forces and they succeeded. They, did, they often did sort of three-month deployments in the jungle and they learnt the tactics that had been learnt during the war with the Chindits. Yes, yeah, so they, they weren't uh, the desert troops under Sterling. These were the Chindits, or the sort of old Wingate, Eastern Well, Asia. they drew on many old veterans from all manner of right. parts. Well, Mad Mike Calvert, who really re-established them, he was an ex-Chindit, so he knew jungle warfare. You know, with others like General Templer, who came up with the concept of uh, cutting the Chinese community off from the terrorists, off from the insurgents. It was a very successful operation. You know, that set the scene for using cheaply uh, special forces later on. And, you know, we've already said there were later campaigns as well, later counterinsurgencies. You had the Borneo confrontation against Indonesia, and we knocked that on the head. There was Dofar, there was Yemen... You know, this was at a time when the Americans were going through such hell with Vietnam. And suddenly you get these small forces, unconventional forces, doing quite well in places like Malaya and Borneo. So Britain managed to get a, quite a lot of influence um, from that. And, you know, if you talk domino theory, you know, what happened in Oman, keeping the communists at bay there, stopping the Yemeni Adu, the enemy, the communists coming over. And they were being trained, of course, by the Chinese and the Soviets and the Cubans. Um, 
Britain did very well in stopping that and stopping the other um, parts of the Gulf falling under communist control, seeing MI6 British-backed um, rulers of the Gulf and finally Saudi Arabia, stopping all of those countries coming under communist control. So again, special forces you know, played a part and had a role. OK, so that's the post-war counterinsurgency. And, but in more modern times, we have the problem with countering terrorism. Yes, and again, the SAS found a role, as did the SBS, found a role in that. In 1963, you had the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And in a sort of rather backhanded way, this benefited the Brits because it showed that for all the Secret Service bodyguards with their earpieces, for all the armoured limousines, uh, the American president hadn't been saved. And you could say the same thing with the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan later on. This sort of, in a way, helped the British because it showed the British way of doing things, of using covert operators, of having understated uh, protection to guard your N- principles. Not revealing your hand. Not revealing your hand. Yeah. It, was a, it was, in a way, a far better way of going about things. And, again, who was there to help but either special forces or ex-special forces people who could go out to many places in the world um, and, in a way, project soft power for, for Britain and for the allied way, the British way of doing things. There were a lot of hijacks of planes back in the late 60s and early 70s. You got a plethora of Palestinian groups, whether it was the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, Abu Nidal. You had mercenaries like Carlos the Jackal, Ilik Sanchez. You had the Red Army faction. You had all these groups appearing in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, and then you had the appalling... uh business in Munich in the, at the Olympics in 1973. And, and that changed everything. Uh, you, people suddenly realised you have to deal with it forcefully. You can't just negotiate. You can't just pay them off. The, the Germans, for example, the West Germans, as they were in those days, uh, had a terrible reputation for constantly paying off terrorists. And that, of course, led pay, to... Paying the, the ransom. Paying the ransom yeah. and leading to the next terrorist act. Yeah. After Munich, I think the the whole sort of attitude changed and you started getting... For those few people who don't know, Munich was the murder of the Israeli athletes. Yes, nine Israelis. And it, it was a catastrophe both for the Germans and the Israelis and for the fight against terrorism. And that's when you started getting concerted efforts to improve counter-terrorism. And the people who were really at the spearhead, at the forefront of that, was Britain's uh, Special Air Service, the SAS, because they had, from the 1960s onwards, they had built a killing house, they had perfected the art of using uh, the pistol, for example, as an offensive weapon. They had taken what Sykes and Fairburn had done using the um, their... Self-defence and, and the They had ta- taken what Sykes and Fairburn had done in terms of the use of the pistol, the Shanghai method of shooting from the hip. They had taken the OSS um, method of shooting pistols, holding it 
you know, square to the body. And they had refined it. They had made it more sinuous and flowing. And, you know, they could clear houses with a pistol. Northern Ireland had helped that. that that's what you mean by the killing house. So it's a training zone for, for how to go through a house with a weapon and clear out enemies. Yes, it's close quarter battle. Yeah. And so things like bodyguarding, uh, clearing houses, using pistols as an offensive weapon. You know, the SAS had perfected that. You know, come the 70s, when you got the Israelis going into Entebbe in 1976 in a brilliant operation and showing that you could take on terrorists. You know, they had four Hercules, they had uh, an armoured limo coming down the ramp at the rear of the Hercules pretending to be Idi Amin and his bodyguards in jeeps and then attacking the terminal building and saving their hostages, saving the Israeli hostages. Uh, it was an incredible operation. Well, especially when you can consider that it can go very badly wrong. I mean, like the example of um, the Egyptian special forces in Malta. Oh, that was a total catastrophe. What the day... same sort of idea, wasn't it, of... Um, it was uh, November 1985 when the Egyptian flight 648 was subject to a hijack. Yes, and what had happened was that Delta Force had offered its services and the Egyptians said, no, 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 we can do it ourselves. It just shows what happens when you have people who are half-trained and not very competent and they've never thought it through, the, 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 the sort of format of how you deal with a hostage situation. So they went in. First of all, they turned off the runway lights so the terrorists knew these were Abu Nidal terrorists who had hijacked an Egypt air flight. They um, turned off the airport lights so the terrorists knew they were going in. They used far too much plastic explosive, the commandos, when they went in. They came up through the um, baggage hold underneath the aircraft they used so much plastic explosive it blew quite a few of the passengers to pieces um, blew racks of seats up onto the ceiling so people broke their necks the plane caught fire the egyptian commandos were throwing in smoke grenades so no one could see either the commandos or the terrorists they reckon you know up to 10 or 11 uh, hostages were killed by uh, the egyptian commandos themselves it was a complete fiasco. Over 50 passengers were killed. Yeah, and there were only, there were only 90 in total on the aeroplane. Yes, yeah, so it just shows you know, why these things have to be practised and practised all the time. And also a kind of lack of regard for the life of the hostages, you know, the glory of the raid and not actually considering the people who they're trying to rescue. Yes, so it, it really has to be focused and it has to be thought through. And, you know, come 1977 in Mogadishu, when GSG-9, the recently formed German counter-terrorist police unit, uh, went in, who, who should be kneeling on the wings, throwing in the stun grenades, the flashbangs, but two SAS guys? So it showed that by then, A, there was going to be cooperation, and B, the SAS were in the forefront. Come 1980 and the Prince's Gate siege, the Iranian embassy siege, that was then stormed by the SAS, you, know, you really get the, the high point of you know, what can go right when it, something is well-planned and there's been a lot of thought and a lot of training behind it. And again, it put special forces 
on the map and in the public gaze, which isn't always a good thing. Well, no, I was just going to say it was the moment where they started to be glamorised, that photograph of them going in through the window. That was the moment, you know, I mean, nowadays we've got... uh, ex-SAS people on television doing celebrity shows and, and whether that was the sort of beginning of that glamour. It wasn't something David Sterling would have approved of. No, and David Sterling was always against the concept of an elite. He just simply said that they were special in what they did. You know, there have been a lot of articles written about this this growing self-regard and the, the, the sort of, in a way, the sort of mythologizing of of special forces, rather than just saying they're incredibly well trained, they're incredibly dedicated, and they're incredibly good. You know, it's got an extra layer now because it's in the public eye, and you know, the, the, you know, in a sense, they've lost their secrecy and become a cult. So the fact that they're now in the public eye shows how important they've become. They become incredibly important, and if there wasn't a need for them, they wouldn't exist. And you can see that, you know, in American special forces, that because of the SAS, people like Charlie Beckwith, who was so important in setting up Delta Force, was the founding father of the Delta Force, he got those ideas from his secondment with 22 SAS. You can see that Delta Force is really formed very much along those lines. And given the counter-terrorist role, given that groups like Delta Force and SEAL Team 6 in the US have played such a a leading, cutting-edge role in taking out people like Osama bin Laden and further operations in Afghanistan and Iraq, that need for them is not going to diminish. And as we said earlier, in a fragmented world where there are warlords and different threats growing up, there are myriad potential threats that need to be countered, that need to be dealt with. And they're best dealt with, with the same four-man or 16-man groups of special forces uh, that can be done below the radar, uh, covertly or clandestinely, and done effectively. The fact that the British now have the Special Reconnaissance Regiment as well that grew out of 14 in the debt in Northern Ireland. You know, there's still a need for close target reconnaissance, surveillance. There's still a need for sabotage, for counterinsurgency, and for sending in units that could be used before you have to escalate to something far more serious. Yeah. But uh, they're not always, well, we talked about it, uh, mentioned it, uh, the magic bullet, the cure-all. They are not a cure-all for political problems. They need to be correctly tasked, and they can end in disaster. Yes, they need to be integrated as well into the military, and you, you have to task them correctly and you have to command them correctly that if you take, if you look at Operation Eagle Claw in April 1980... It's a classic example of what can go wrong. You know, if the mission is over complex, if you don't necessarily have the right equipment, if you don't have a good plan. This is the uh, relief of hostages from the Iranian embassy. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was the attempt by Delta Force to go in and get the American hostages out. And one of the problems is there were so many agencies involved. I think there were 21 separate agencies involved. You had 50 different comms channels. You just had too many pieces in a jigsaw. And if any one of those pieces fell out, 
whether it was an aircraft or a helicopter or a comms channel, you were going to be in serious difficulty. And that's exactly what happened. And a bit like the later invasion by the US of Grenada, if you don't integrate or use your special forces correctly, you're going to be in trouble. So they they have to be part of the whole. They have to have a proper function. People have to know what the chain of command is, and people have to know what the goal is, and it has to be achievable. So the future, it's not just going to be the internet and drones. There, there is obviously a future, but they have to watch the sort of self-regard element. Yes, but there will always be a need for you know, hard-driving kinetic forces that can achieve a kill. You can't do everything with a remotely piloted vehicle. You have to have eyes on the ground occasionally. Fantastic, Jamie. Thank you. Well, we've got a little PS, I think, as we like to end on a lighter note once we've been into depth with such a, a, an important subject. So um, what is it about SAS officers and their sang-froid? <laughs> well, we talked about the need for individualism and self-motivation and you know, being able to improvise in an emergency. And there was one a highly eccentric SAS officer in World War II who used to go around in jodhpurs. He was captured by the Germans. And, of course, that could have been death in those days, as we know, because of the commando order. But he managed to persuade his German captors that he was an Italian officer come to inspect our lines. So he strutted up and down, pretending to be Italian, <laughs> and coming up with his basic Italian words and looking very pleased at what he saw. And then he just nipped over a trench and disappeared into the desert. Was he wearing his Carlos Fandango joppers? <laughs> he certainly was wearing some kind of joppers, but it, <laughs> it got him through. It, it was uh, that and amateur dramatics yeah. allowed him to survive. I know. Well, there were, I mean, Mad Jack Churchill, who... Uh, came ashore uh, on uh, D-Day. I mean, he went into battle with a broadsword, bagpipes and a longbow. And actually, he had the only confirmed kill of a longbow in World War Two. In spite of Anders Lassen and his longbow. I know, well... Anders Lassen's had a lot of praise from this show, so I think we, we can give that to J mad Jack Churchill. Well, wasn't there a guy in a bowler hat as well? Oh, yeah, Digby... Digby Tatham Water, he led a bayonet charge against tanks wearing his, um, his bowler hat. And he, he once disabled a German armoured car with an umbrella. Yes, <laughs> and that's why they call them special. Yes, fantastic. Well, we love our pirates in Britain. And this national characteristic has served us and protected us well across the centuries. British special forces may be trained and equipped with the latest tactics and tech, but at their heart is the spirit of Drake, Hornblower, and Sterling. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. This is an extract from The Fellowship of Arms by Tony Mellows, who died on active service in France, August 1944, aged 23. They did not hear the trumpet sound. Fame is a poor companion in the grave. And six feet underground here lies no consolation for the brave. But we have something no one else can know. No poet's pen can hymn its charms. No great musician draw it from his bow. The fellowship of arms. And smoky time will mellow death, forgiving nature heal a victor's scars, till memory's seasoned breath kindles the flame that turned our thoughts to Mars.
So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck.